Father God, I just would lift this morning up to you. I would ask that you would take the things that we do, add whatever you can to strengthen them, to make them more glorious, more able to get to our hearts and change us. And I pray that in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're talking about God and art. Um, it's something I've wanted to talk about for a while. Uh, not because I'm an artist. Um, my wife has to dress me. Uh, when we were married, she walked into my closet and, and everything was blue. Every single thing, uh, pants, shorts, shirts, button-ups, sweaters, it was all blue. And I thought that was wonderful. Um, she didn't. Um, but for some reason, I've just had a, 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 a burning desire to talk about the subject of art and as it relates to God and Scripture and those kinds of things. And this is my chance because uh, th for the next several weeks, there's going to be a series on the church. And so I felt like I could kind of sneak it in because art has something to do with the church. And so I'm sneaking it in today and we're going to talk about God and art. Uh, I put a definition on your hand out there. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it other than just to simply say this that uh, there's a couple qualities that, that art speaks of. One is beauty. Um, and the other major one I want to talk about is skill. Um, beauty and, and art and the things that move us um, don't just jump out randomly and from everybody. They don't come out of me. Uh, they come with skill and with giftedness um, and with practice and with talent and those kinds of things. Um, it can be I put fine art here. Fine art, just a, a quick distinction, is art that is produced primarily for beauty and not uh, for utility. So paintings are produced not because they make good hammers or um, tablecloths, but because they are purely for the sake of beauty. But art, the larger subject of art, incorporates not only painting and poems and pottery, but cabinet making. Uh, decorating. Uh, it incorporates all the things that, that are in and out of our day-to-day -day existence and have some element of beauty in them that move our emotions. And so I just want to kind of give a quick sketch of what I'm talking about when I talk about art. It is a huge subject. It is a huge subject. Now the, the big question this morning is why talk about art and aesthetics? Why talk about it? Why is it important? And the first one is simply this. Beauty is tied to worship and emotions. I talk about art because beauty is important. Why is beauty important? Because beauty is tied to worship and the emotions. When God wants to stir us, He says, look at the beauty of creation and let that move you. Let it cause you to worship. Let it get to your emotions. And so art is important. God is an artist. Art is about creating things. Using the imagination, using skill in creating things. And creation, our creation, our earth, our universe, is at the top of that list. And when we want to look at beauty, we look at creation. Now here's the thing. If, if you've got someone who's good at something, okay, Michael Jordan at basketball, if you're going to take that thing away, you take basketball away, um, just think of when Jordan was playing baseball. Uh, when you take away basketball, he's no longer fully who he is. 
Now, one of the greatest things about our God is His understanding of beauty and His ability to, to make beautiful things. I was listening to a CD this week where a guy was talking about how many different colors and shades of colors we see in nature. Just think about driving to church this morning. The trees, the grass, the sky, the mountains, the clouds, the flowers, did any of it clash? None of it. Have you ever looked at nature and said, well, that clashes. That doesn't go well today. Um, you really shouldn't wear that with those shoes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, never in your life have you looked at nature, even though there's every hue, every color, every stripe in nature, never have you looked at it and said it clashes. We couldn't do that as people. God is good at art. And if we remove the subject of art or the appreciation of art or of beauty, then we're taking away basketball from Jordan. Because we're going to stop recognizing that beauty and art is a wonderful or praiseworthy thing. And God will be less glorified. So the first reason to talk about art and aesthetics is the glory of God demands it. If we're going to give proper praise to God, we've got to value the things that God is good at. And chief among those is art and creativity and beauty. Francis Schaeffer said that an artwork can be a doxology in itself. An artwork can be a doxology in itself. A doxology is, if you've ever been to a high church or a formal church, at the end where you give praise to God. Some of you sing the doxology. An artwork can be doxology in itself. The second thing uh, I want to offer up is why I want to talk about art, and this is the bigger one. Um, is this. Art and culture has been devalued in many ways in the 20th century, primarily by ultra-conservatism, the conservative Christian circles. Now, I'm going to give a quick sketch here. Forgive me if I make generalizations. Um, I don't have time, and it'd be fun if we could do a whole series. But art and culture, my thesis is, has been devalued in many ways in the 20th century. And I think if you just look inside and think about your, your instinctive reaction to the word art, or art gallery, or artist, or art showing, or culture in the arts, um, you'll know that somehow it doesn't sit well. There's a little, a lot, with a lot of us, it feels a little bit weird. Is this worldly? Is it secular? Is that something I can be in support of? It's not words that that we normally jump after and get really excited about and think that's the church and that's Christianity. And let me explain briefly why that is, partly why it is. Art in the 20th century. And I, I don't know how much of this is due to the, uh, the invention of the camera. The invention of the camera certainly did change painting um, and drawing in, in the canvas because no longer were artists primarily making their money doing representational portraits of people. Okay? Cameras could do that now. That partly had a, an effect on it. Um, but atheistic philosophies had a huge effect on it. Existentialism and other types of things like that. And what happens is in the beginning of the 20th century, art goes in weird and different and new directions. Um, Picasso and Salvador Dali and, and Cubism. And you've seen Picasso's works, and what he's doing is he's fracturing reality 
so that on a two-dimensional canvas, you're seeing multiple dimensions. You're seeing the side of the face as well as the front of the face. And we look at it and we say, that's weird. And part of it comes from his worldview. It comes out of a fractured worldview. And he's trying to represent part of this in his work. Uh, Duchamp and his, what he called ready-mades. He would take things that are already in existence and he would tweak them a little bit and take a picture of them. And so he took a urinal and turned it 90 degrees, took a picture of it, and it was voted uh, recently the most influential piece of artwork in the 20th century. A picture of a urinal turned 90 degrees back in the early 20th century. Um, and we saw those things, or our... our, our our forebears saw those things and it made them react strongly. How can God be glorified in this? What are the arts doing? And it's promoting a worldview that's different than our Christian worldview. And what begins to take place is we begin to set ourselves against art as a discipline because we disagree with some of the art that's being put out there. Now, I don't want to talk about how do you distinguish good art from bad art. I think a lot of us can do it intuitively. Um, but there's criteria that you can use to distinguish good art from bad art. Um, and there's bad art out there. And there's art that is good art, but expresses a bad worldview. Does that make sense? There are things that are artistic that, that are done with a lot of skill, but speak to a worldview that is patently atheistic or non-Christian. Okay? So I don't want to talk about how do you distinguish good art from bad art, but what I simply want to say is in the 20th century, with the movements going on in art, it began to make the Christian community see the, the culture of the world and the arts as something they were against. And what happens with beliefs is beliefs get in there and they affect the way that we act, they affect the way that we view things, but we very rarely look at our beliefs. They're in there, they shape the way we see the world, but very rarely do we step back and analyze our own beliefs. Now, I think everybody in this room is all for art. If I, were, if I went to your house, I would see paintings, I would see pictures, and they'd be framed. Um, I, I think you probably picked out your couches to match the color on your wall. Uh, we are for art. And, and so it's kind of weird when deep down inside we have this latent suspicion and hostility possibly or aversion to culture and the arts because we value art but somehow we're thinking that art out there and artists they're bohemians they're they're all about the things that we're not supposed to be about and that that belief is in there and what we need to do is step back and say art is not wrong and culture is not necessarily wrong we need to distinguish and be against bad art and very much for good art. Another thing that affected um, how we valued art in the 20th century is simply this, revivalism. Um, more specifically, dispensational premillennialism. Okay. Now, I'm not arguing whether that's a true theology, a good theology, or bad theology, but in the late 1800s, dispensationalism as a theology, and that's our tradition, came on strong. And premillennialism, you know it from the Left Behind series, uh, means that, that God's going to come, Jesus is going to come back any day, and you're going to get pulled right out of the airplane, and your clothes are going to be left behind. Um, that's a caricature of it, okay? But throughout the revivalism of the 20th century, it was driven by this strongly held conviction 
that it is all going to hell in a handbasket. It is going down and Jesus is going to come back any moment. And what matters, in a sense, almost the only thing that matters is the saving of lost souls. Okay, Here's how I'd illustrate it. The Titanic is sinking. Um, it's stupid to polish the brass handrails on, on the staircase. The only thing that matters is getting as many people into lifeboats as you can get. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the theology of fundamentalism in the conservative circles of the 20th century. I'm not saying it's a wrong theology. What I'm saying is, in its extreme, it has led the church in the 20th century to devalue art, spending money on art, um, spending time working with culture and trying to bring beauty out in culture because the Titanic's sinking. That doesn't have any value. That money, the time, the energy should all go towards saving lost souls. And whenever you take something and you go to an extreme, it becomes difficult. Um, the Bible tells me that if I obey God and find favor with Him, that He will bless my children to a thousand generations. You know how long that is? I didn't do the math. It's pretty long. Okay, to a thousand generations. In some sense, I'm supposed to live my life not trying to figure out what day, what time Christ is coming back, but living it as if my descendants are going to go on for a thousand generations. I want to work so hard at raising my kids and educating them and giving them a heart for God that I leave a legacy that will last generations and generations and generations. And I have to somehow balance that with the other aspect of eschatology of Christ's return that it could come like a thief in the night. And i got these two separate things going on. I'm supposed to live as if there's a huge heritage coming out. And I'm also supposed to live as if it could come any moment. And I have to struggle with that tension. And it's that tension that keeps me from making errors. It's the, he could come back as a thief in the night and it's really important to save lost souls that keeps us from going the route of, of St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican City and being over-opulent or not caring enough about uh, lost souls here and now or that time could come to a stop or that we could be called to account or that that money could go towards fulfilling the Great Commission. It's, it's that imminent return of Christ that keeps us from going overboard. But it's the, the sense that we're supposed to not wait and watch and go sell everything and sit on a hill and say, Christ, please come back at midnight. But we're supposed to raise our kids and teach them and model them and engage our culture. It's this aspect that keeps us from going too far the other side. And we have to wrestle with that. And in the 20th century, we went to one extreme and it becomes really hard now to value the arts and culture. Quickly now, uh, what can we learn about art from the Bible? We're going to have to move, move through these pretty quick. Uh, the first one here, which I think is really important, because when you want to throw out art and culture, what you really are kind of doing is saying, I want to throw out every kind of art that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I'm okay with the paintings that look just like pictures and photographs, and a little Thomas Kincaid's okay. It doesn't scare me too much. But it's the radical forms or the, the really symbolic forms I want to get rid of. Uh, I just want it to look like a photograph, and then I'm okay with paintings, etc. Um, or songs, even. Um, I don't want songs to be too symbolic or flowery. I don't want poetry to be too... And the first thing here is this. It is okay for art to be symbolic. 
It is okay for art to be symbolic. A couple things real quickly. Um, Exodus 28, the priestly garments. Um, God is specifying that red pomegranates, back in that society they would take a, a pomegranate, which comes from an incredibly bright red flower, and is a red fruit uh, with the rind. They would actually extract from the rind and use it as a red dye. Now God is, is mandating that the priestly garments are supposed to have pomegranates made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, which is symbolic. He doesn't say red yarn. He doesn't even just say scarlet yarn only. He says blue and purple and scarlet yarn. And he wants it to be a symbolic, a beautiful thing representing a pomegranate. Um, not only that, but if you look at the whole outfit, there was lots of blues in it. Um, I just think he was trying to make it match, okay? Uh, red would clash, okay? Um, but God is prescribing specifically the art form of the priestly dress, and it's supposed to match, and it's supposed to have symbolic things on it, using multiple colors to represent something else. We're not supposed to make God in any kind of an image or worship Him in any kind of a way that would degrade Him. Yet God Himself in places that are too many to count, Psalm 89, if you want to look there, will talk uh, himself and will want us to talk about him as having an arm or a hand. Now, does God have an arm or a hand? No. Does he have wings? No. Um, yet he uses these symbolic things to express aspects of who he is. Baptism itself is a symbolic thing. When we do the Lord's Supper, it's a symbolic thing. And symbolism has power. Symbolism can get to our heart. It can move us. So the first thing here is it's okay for art to be symbolic. Okay? The second thing, our problem with art forms is often cultural rather than biblical. And quickly with this one too. Psalm 149.3. I'll just turn there. Just listen to this whole paragraph, actually. Sing to, the no, uh, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their Maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing. That was kind of the one I was trying to hit on, in case you didn't pick up on. Let them praise His name with dancing and make music to Him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy. And this is a strange phrase. And sing for joy on their beds. Okay? But dancing. And we see Moses' sister after the Red Sea dancing. And we see David as the ark is coming up into Jerusalem dancing all by himself. Okay? Um, you're not supposed to drink alone. I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to dance alone. Um, and here he is in his undergarments, dancing with all his might before all of Israel. So much so that his wife, looking out the window, was ashamed, humiliated. But David was worshiping God. Now there's a lot of things that can come out in this, um, but I just want to simply say, when we look at art or forms of art, if we react negatively to it, we've got to ask, is it biblical? Am I reacting as God reacts, or is this cultural? Have I been brought up a certain way, but it's not a part of, of God's program? 
It's just something that got put in there that maybe I have to analyze, a belief that I have to step back and look at. Now, I'm not saying all forms of dancing are good. I think there's a lot that are bad. Okay, but have you ever seen archival footage of the Jews when uh, the United Nations proclaimed the mandate to, uh, to, to set up a, a nation or a state for Israel? And the Jews in the streets all around the world dancing? Or, or uh, when the, the, the war was over or even further back, moving videos of, of those Jews dancing? Have you ever seen a movie with just a Jewish wedding? And they get in a circle and they, they put their arms around each other. And you look at that and you say, I wish I was Jewish. Then you think, gee, I'm Christian, maybe I'm kind of partly could go fit in, you know, but it looks so fun. It looks like, oh, if I could just be a part of something like that, it would, I would rejoice. It's a, it's a joyous type of a thing. And when you watch that, it, you, you want to get drawn into it. And our problem with many art forms is often cultural rather than biblical. God's message is often best conveyed through art. Ezekiel 4 and uh, this is an interesting one. And if you keep reading on in the chapter, it gets more interesting, but we won't go there. Um, now, this is what God says to his prophet in chapter 4 of Ezekiel. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Clay tablet and draw Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Um, not the real city, the clay tablet, okay? Lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. And he goes on, okay? And what he's basically saying is, I want you to set up a drama. You're going to do a drama presentation to the, you know, in front of the city, about the city, to the people of the city, and it's going to communicate the message symbolically through drama, that, that uh, they're in trouble, okay? And God's message is often best conveyed through art. He uses art forms. When Jesus talked to people, I've heard engineers talk, I was taught by professors in engineering schools, um, and Jesus didn't talk like those guys. He would use parables. He talked more like a poet than he did an engineer or a scientist. He talked so abstractly sometimes that half the people listening to him couldn't figure out what he was saying. Okay? And God has deemed it that art forms often will communicate the essence of his message better than just straight, boring, conventional speech. Why are the, the portions of scripture that are the most read, the part right in the middle of the book, Psalms? Because they have poetic value to them. And it's a shame in English we don't get the full characteristic of that poetry. And I don't read Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But I've had enough Hebrew scholars tell me that if you read it in the original Hebrew, the poetry just jumps off the page. Okay? They're, they're poems. They're art forms. And God uses them to speak to us. And we pray those psalms. Because they somehow get into our heart and convey what we're, we're wanting to say, what we're, we're hungry to say, and they convey that better than the words we come up with ourselves. And so God's message is often best conveyed through art. Let me just read a quick quote from Madeline Engel, who's a Christian author, uh, and it's a fun little book called Walking on Water, and she's talking about different things. And this is what she says about herself as an artist. 
It is not easy for me to be a Christian. How many of us could say that, right? It is not easy for me to be a Christian. To believe 24 hours a day all that I want to believe. I stray and then my stories pull me back if I listen to them carefully. I've often been asked if my Christianity affects my stories. And surely it is the other way around. My stories affect my Christianity. Restore me, shake me by the scruff of the neck, and pull this straying sinner into an odd faith. Art forms often best communicate God's message to us. Uh, lastly, cost is sometimes less important than symbolic forms of worship. Cost is often less important than symbolic forms of worship. I'll give you two examples. If uh, We're running out of time, so I might just read it to you. But in Exodus um, chapter 25, God again, this is straight from the mouth of God. He's prescribing what the tabernacle, the, the things around the tabernacle, what all this is supposed to be like. And he says this in uh, verse 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And he's talking about the ark here. Um, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Now, a couple things here. One is, God is prescribing what kind of statues, what kind of art He wants. It's symbolic. The way they're positioned is supposed to represent certain things. But an artist is going to have to come take these instructions and actually make it look beautiful. Okay? But it's supposed to be out of gold. The finest metal. Hammered gold is what this is supposed to be out of. Now, why is that interesting? What's interesting about it is it is going to be set in a room called the Holy of Holies that only one human being is allowed to walk into one time a year. Okay? You're putting all this gold, God, in this one room that only one person, one time a year, is going to get to see. That seems pretty wasteful. No. Because it communicates something about the glory of God that we need to grapple with. And that cost is okay. There's a story from the New Testament, and you're familiar with it. And I'll paraphrase it, but the, before Jesus dies, a woman comes and she pours perfume, about a year's worth of, of money. Uh, just pours it out, not, not a, a drop like they would often do. Take a couple drops, put it in places. She pours it out on Jesus. And his disciples, and this might have been the thing that put Judas over the edge, we don't know. Um, his disciples react to that, because Judas kept the money, so he would have been keenly aware of this. But his disciples react to that and they say, this is foolish. It's foolish. That money could have been used to feed the poor. It could have been used to feed us. <laughs> um, it could have been used for whatever. And Jesus says, no, you leave her alone. Okay? The idea being what she did here is a glorious thing. And whenever you tell the stories, okay, about all the wonderful things you guys did as disciples, you know, because they're going to get to write the histories, you know, and I'm sure they're going to put themselves in and Jesus in. He basically says, whenever you tell the stories, 
You put her in. What she did is so noble. What she did is so pure. Although it cost a whole lot of money and it was wasteful, it was worship. And Jesus says, it is okay. Now we don't worship the art or art forms or culture or extravagance or aesthetics. But those things can cause us or stir in us a worship of God that is, that is remarkable and fabulous. And sometimes, sometimes, it's going to cost money. And that's okay. It's okay. My conclusions here. We should enjoy and value art and aesthetics. We should enjoy and value art and aesthetics. It should be a part of our tradition that when people talk about the church, man, those people do amazing things. Have you ever seen their art forms? Have you ever heard the poetry coming out of that church? Have you ever seen the, the gifted people that that body has? Whether it's the voices, whether it's the, the, the pottery, whether it's the cabinetry, whether it's the decor, I don't know. But people should see it and go, wow. In the Christian church that I grew up in, there was only one career choice that was ever sanctioned by the church. Uh, and this was it. If you want to go be a missionary, uh, wow, good choice. Uh, it's what you should have done. It's what you should have chosen. We will sanction that. We will back that. We will put you... Uh, in the places you need to be and we'll make it happen and, and we are proud of you. If you choose any other career path, well, we, we suppose that's okay, but you better make it. in the public school system out there and we need to take kids that have certain gifts and raise them up in the way they should go and affirm them and give them a passion and a vision for how they can use their giftedness to glorify God and change lives, even if they're not a missionary. We should have a missional mindset that every single Christian is on a mission for God, whether it's a missionary calling or vocation, or whether it's something else in town, in society, working in the mall. But I certainly believe that we need to have more Christian artists out there. And so I almost subtitled this message, Why God Sheds Tears Over Starving Artists. Why God sheds tears over starving artists. God created young little Christians, boys and girls, with artistic gifts. And then we, we lead them out of it. Because you can't make a living that way. And I think God gets so angry at this whole you can't make a living in an artist thing because it's causing us to take people he wants to bring him glory with their art and to help move the congregation and we steer them a different direction or they're forced to go a different direction. And I think God sheds tears that, that the artist community is looked at as a starving artist thing or irresponsible choice of a lifestyle. I think God grieves that. The second thing, we should create a culture where artists and their contributions are valued. We should create a culture where artists and their contributions are valued. Husbands, uh, fathers, if you have wives, if you have children that show artistic gifts, buy them an art set, pay for lessons, help them brainstorm how they can get into arenas uh, where they can grow and display their art, affirm them, cover that refrigerator with art, 
Here's the thing that drives me, and, and I know we're five minutes over, and I, I confess it, and so the sin is forgiven. Um, but, but here's what is driving me right now. Okay, so I just need to share from the heart for a second, so, so please look up here. Um, I am running into this everywhere I go. Everywhere I go, I am running into Christians that are finding it almost impossible to keep their fire lit. I'm running into Christian men, women, boys and girls everywhere that are finding it so hard to run this race called Christianity. They don't have a fire for Scripture. They value prayer. They're not driven to it. They call themselves Christian. They can't do it with joy in their voices. Not that they don't want to. It's just not there. It's not in there. And I'm running into this everywhere. And what baffles me about it is when I watch us, the same types of people, and I sit down with someone and, and they'll, they're starting a new diet. And, and the next thing you know is like last week they were eating you know, donuts for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And now they're trying to preach to the whole world about how they need to be saved by this new diet. And everyone else is eating wrong and need to eat this way and they get so excited. And you know that there's an actual quilt festival in Sisters. And if you go up there, you could cut some of these people and they bleed quilt making. Um, I don't understand it. But there are people that are passionate for things. Okay? They're passionate. Um, I know someone that went and saw the new Star Wars movie eight times in the theater. Okay? We're passionate about things. We're passionate. The problem isn't that people are not passionate people. The problem is we're having a, a hard time being passionate about God. We're passionate about a lot of things. We as a Christian community are having a hard time being passionate about God. And art speaks directly to that. When uh, Wordsworth died, Matthew Arnold said this, But who, ah, who will make us feel? Who now will make us feel? And he's saying Wordsworth made that generation feel. And now that he's gone, who is going to make us feel? And art is something that will shake us out of that boredom. That will, will, will light a fire, it will stir us up. It can. Bad art will do the opposite. It will turn us off. But good art can stir our hearts. I feel like we're a lump of charcoal. And those, the, nobody has these anymore. It's all gas, charcoal, fire grills. But the ones, you know, that smell really good and you, you put in the, the charcoal briquettes and you pile them up and you can light a match and you can hold a match to that thing for years and it'll never catch fire. You know what I'm talking about? You hold it for years and that's why they invented that wonderful thing called lighter fluid. Um, and you sit there and it's just, you use three quarters of that bottle and it's the best part, right? And uh, it makes it fun. You try not to get your hair singed, etc., etc. This is what my conviction is. Um, we're a lump of coals. And we're put together and we were made to be on fire. Um, but many of us are having a hard time catching fire. And art is that lighter fluid. And there's those of you that have gifts with computers even, graphic arts, singers in the congregation, poets, 
people who can do pottery, who can do cabinets. Um, and you're sitting there and you've been turned off for years. There's no place for my giftedness in the church. I, don't, I can't go on stage, so what can I do? And somehow, some way, we need you to come and ignite us. To use your art to stir us. To say things in a way that, that the rest of us who just think plainly can't say it. Um, to lead us in worship in a way that draws out of us, which we didn't even know was in us. That watched, it caused us to walk into a building and, and just go, wow, I love being here. I'm ready to worship. And somehow, some way, those of you out here, God has made and gifted and shaped to turn us on, to light that fire, and you need to hear that you have to. You don't have a choice. Uh, it's, we need you to step up. We need you to be involved in the body of Christ and light that fire for us. We need to create a culture where artists and their contributions are valued. Let's pray. Father, we value you, we value your creation, and we want to desire you more. We want our hearts to, to want nothing above you. We want our hearts to be so hungry for you that everything else pales in comparison. And we want that to be lasting, not just for a moment or for a day or for an hour or for a week. We want a fire that will burn steady. And I just pray that you would renew an interest in art, in symbolism, in aesthetics, in beauty, so that, that beauty could get to our emotions and it could cause us to worship you all the more. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you're looking for prayer this morning... If